Well, yesterday I spent the entire day replacing, for the fourth time, I might add, the liner in our swimming pool. It was time to go. It was time to do that. We had a blowout at the end of last season, and so we just kind of left it. And so it's been this project that's been on my mind for quite some time. Mel was working. I was uh, by myself, except for my faithful canine companion, Winnie Kai. Her main concern was sleeping in the sun on the deck. It was actually glorious, though. The weather, of course, was beautiful. The project went well. I actually ended the day with some, some quality time with my son, which was very nice. But I had a few thoughts during the day. You know, is it just me in this empty swimming pool? Does this really glorify God? Like, what I'm doing right now, this seems so mundane and so... Like, shouldn't I be doing something else? Like, you know, saving the world or feeding the homeless or evangelizing a neighbor or something like that? I think we all have those moments in our lives where we're just like, does what I'm even doing right now have any greater significance? Does like the place that the Lord has me in right now in my life or at work or wherever, does it really even matter? And let me cut to the chase. Absolutely 100% yes, it does matter. What we do now today matters. And specifically, Christians, it matters for eternity. How? Does it matter? Well, in short, it's, it's not so much what we're doing necessarily, but how we are doing it. If we say we are Christians, then how does that impact everything that we do in this life? And Paul's going to tell us all about that. So hopefully you're in Romans chapter 2. Last week we looked at God the perfect judge, unlike us as imperfect judges, Though we're still called to judge in some capacity, we must judge with right judgment, with humility, not hypocrisy. And God will inevitably judge everyone accordingly and perfectly, and until then, we are to persevere in faithfulness. This week, Paul continues with the theme of God's judgment, but he is addressing it to his fellow Jews. And this brings in a huge topic, justification and the law. Let's look at Romans 3 and verse 12 again. The Apostle Paul, Romans 2 and verse 12. That's why Romans 3 didn't make sense when I looked at it. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law that are righteous before God, but the doers of the, Lord who will, of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, do what the law requires. They are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And so we have some super important theological words here that appear for the very first time in Paul's letter, and we're going to see them a lot over the next coming weeks. Remember when we left off last week in verse 11 of chapter 2, it says this very important statement, God shows no impartiality, especially in judgment, particularly in judgment. You aren't going to be any better off if you are Jewish or if you are a Gentile, you will not escape his inevitable judgment. And it all comes down to how we obeyed God. 
Every single person on earth is a sinner, but there's a very important subgrouping of all people. Either you sin, Paul says, without the law, like Gentiles, or you sin under the law, like his Jewish brothers and sisters. Commentary writer John Murray says that God deals with them according to the law which they possessed. So you and I will be held responsible, right, for our knowledge of God's law. And you can see what he's setting up here. The Jews, of course, had a vast knowledge of God's law, and they were responsible for that. The Gentiles, not so much. And we should be pretty familiar with the definition of God's law, having spent the last two months before Romans going through it in the series on the Ten Commandments, almost like I had a plan. And now we go into the book of Romans. The moral law given to Moses, summarized in the Ten Commandments. And what we know of God's law is going to be really, really important on that day of judgment. The moral law of God will be God's criteria for judgment for everyone. Not only what we know of the law, but he says particularly how we obeyed the law. It's not just having an awareness of the law. It's not just even having knowledge of the law. It's did you obey God's law. And this brings us to the word sin. And it's the first time it's mentioned here in Romans. To sin literally means to miss the mark, to be off target, right? And so if we think of God's law as the target, right, when we sin, we miss the mark. We miss the standard of God's law. Anytime we sin against the Ten Commandments, anytime, as Jesus summarized for us, we fail to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, or we fail to love others as much as we love ourselves, we sin. We miss the mark of God's standard. Paul says in verse 12, For because all who have sinned without the law will also, also perish without the law, and those who sinned under the law will be judged by the law. He first speaks to Gentiles who were not given the law. And when we think about Jews and Gentiles, think about those people that are Jewish, that are God's nation, Israel, and then Gentiles is one big bucket for everybody else, right? In the Jewish mind, there were Jews, the people of God, and then there was everybody else. So the Gentiles are the everybody else category. The Gentiles did not have God's law in the sense that they weren't the people of Israel. They didn't go to Mount Sinai. Sinai. They did not have God give them the law. They did not have the temple. They did not have the sacrifices, all of that. But the Jews did. So the Gentiles, he addresses first, right? But then he talks about the Jews. And this is primarily, we started in verse 2, he was addressing his Jewish brothers and sisters. And he says, you guys, brothers and sisters, you had the law. You know the law. You were taught the law. And so you're on the hook to obey the law. Gentiles were a different story, right, as far as criteria of judgment. Gentiles will be judged, right, because we know that God will judge every single human being. So Gentiles will be judged, but they'll be judged, as we saw in Romans 1.20, for the existence of God. No one will have an excuse, Romans 1 told us, right? You can't get to heaven and say, I didn't have enough evidence that God existed. I can't believe you existed. He said, I've given you my whole creation. It points to my existence. He says it's obvious, it's plain. So Gentiles will be held responsible for that. But also, Gentiles will be held responsible for whatever knowledge of the law they, watch this, naturally possess. Nerdy theologians call this the natural law. 
The idea that written on our hearts is some moral code, some morality given to us by our Creator. If you didn't have the Ten Commandments, if you never heard of the Ten Commandments, odds are you're going to know in your hearts you don't steal things, you don't murder someone, you don't commit adultery. Odds are you're going to know these things naturally. Why? Because we're all created in God's image and He stamped some of His identity on our soul. So likewise, no one on the planet Earth is going to be able to stand before God and say, I just never knew murdering was wrong. Of course you knew murdering, murdering was wrong. He stamped it on your hearts. But there are levels, there are degrees in how you will be judged based on your exposure to the law. Case in point, if you're Jewish, you will be held to a much higher standard on Judgment Day. Why? Because you had the law. You knew the law. You were steeped in the law. Your whole life was about the law. You had the feasts. You had the sacrifices. You had the temple. You had all of these things that reminded you you were born and raised in the Old Covenant, heard the law day in and day out. You had it memorized. You'll actually be held in more strict judgment because you, Paul says, my Jewish brothers and sisters, you of all people should know better because you know the law. You have it memorized. You have the history. You who are even judged and exiled, right? Because of God's judgment for you breaking his law the first time. You should know better. Remember, Paul is coming after them with this diatribe because they think what? They think we're better off than the Gentiles. We're God's people. He's going to cut us some slack on judgment day. And Paul says, no, there is no impartiality with God. They might have been resting on the fact that they were God's chosen people. And surely he would be more lenient with us. While we sit back and we watch God judge those unclean sinner Gentiles, we will be God's chosen people. Look at verse 13. He tells us this clearly. It's not just knowledge of the law, for it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. It's not the mere fact that you heard the law. It's not the mere fact that you knew the law. He says, did you do the law? Did you obey the law? And then he drops another big Bible word for the first time here in Romans 2, justified. To be justified is a legal term. It's a forensic term. It means to be declared innocent. If you're standing before a judge and you're convicted of a crime, he's either going to declare you innocent or he's going to declare you guilty. And when we talk about it in a spiritual sense, right? God, the one righteous judge, will declare every single person on this earth guilty or innocent. And as believers in Jesus Christ, right, our justification comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. And so that moment that we receive, that we understand, what I was talking about as I was setting up the table, the moment that we understand we're a sinner, the moment that we understand that Jesus came to pave our way to be forgiven by God, that happens. We are justified instantly by faith in Jesus Christ. So that is justification. And he's bringing them back to Jewish Sunday school. He says, look, guys, you know the deal. It's just, just, not just hearing the law, right? It's, it's doing the law. Think about it in relation to Jewish society, and I think this is part of the picture Paul's trying to paint for us. Imagine hearing the law day in and day out and not putting it into practice. You hear that you are to honor your mother and father, and yet you don't do that. You know that you're to remember the Sabbath, and yet you completely ignore it. You're told not to covet, and you do. 
God isn't pleased by the mere fact that you have intellectual retention, knowledge of the law. He says, did you do it? That is how you are justified. So what? You're Jewish? Congratulations, right? Are you obeying the law? Or are you just resting on the fact that you're identified with Israel? As opposed to the sinner, unclean Gentiles, of course, right? Because he goes on, guess what? Those poor, unclean, sinner Gentiles, they're actually doing a better job of obeying the law than you are, and they never even had it. That's what he says in verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They're a law unto themselves, right? As much as what they know about the law, they follow the law. They show the works of the law, the basics of right and wrong, of morality, that they're written on their heart. They instinctively know. Why? Because they have a conscience that guides them. The conscience is something that everyone has, right? It's kind of like a, a law detector, right? How, 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 when, we, when we veer off to one side or the other, right, we feel guilty, right? Because why? We're missing the standard of God's law. Every single person has a conscience. I think we said this last week. Now that conscience could become seared. That conscience could become calloused and hardened. And so you wonder why people do the things they do. It's because that conscience, after years and years and years of ignoring it, they become deaf to it, and they don't care anymore. But everybody has a conscience. Everybody has that, that this, what Paul says later is conflicting thoughts. It's a standard of right and wrong, and we know that. When we, we do wrong, when we fall short of the law, we know that. He says, because there will be a day in verse 16. There will be a day when we stand before God in judgment, and the secrets of our heart, in addition to our actions, the secrets of our heart, God sees them all, will be inevitably judged by God, the perfect judge. There will be nothing hidden from God. When Paul's speaking of judgment here, he's speaking of final judgment, the day of Jesus' return, which, as Paul says, according to the gospel. He says, according to my gospel, right? Probably means two things. If you jump back to the first, chapter one, he was saying, this is the gospel that I have been called into, right? So he has kind of like that personal ownership of this is me. Like, this is me. I, I'm the guy that's called, set apart for the gospel of God. But also, I think he's saying that he needs this gospel just, just as much as they do. This is one of the main purposes of the gospel, Sometimes we don't think about that. But the gospel is about judgment just as much as it is about forgiveness and grace because that's ultimately what the gospel frees us from. It frees us from the judgment that would send us to hell. It culminates in that moment when we stand before Christ, we will either be found to be justified by faith or we will found, be found to be condemned from our rejection of Jesus Christ. This is difficult for us to reconcile with the preceding verses, but hang with me. The gospel message includes the reality of God's judgment. One day Christ will return and he will judge every single human being on the planet. If we are in Christ, we are safe for his, from his judgment of sin and wrath. We are safe from the sentence of hell for eternity. But we will still be judged. Watch this, church. We will still be judged on how we obeyed God. And the criteria of that is still going to be his moral law. 
His perfect standard. This will be judged for our rewards in heaven. There is no gospel without judgment. But again, we have to remember what is included in that judgment. Sometimes when we think about judgment, it's just like heaven or hell. Where it's like, well, yes, that is part of it. But Christians, we too, like non-believers, will be judged for how we obeyed the law. And so we come back to where we started in this passage. I'll say the first point this way. We will be judged for our obedience, not merely our status. We will be judged for our obedience, not merely our status. We said it last week, Christians, again, will not escape judgment. We've said it again just now. We read it again in in 2 Corinthians, just so you know that I'm not making it up. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, every single human being, right? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive, watch this, what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In church, we can be exactly like the Jewish brothers and sisters that Paul is writing to. Resting on our status as Christians and thinking, eh, I'm good. I'm way better than my neighbor because he's crazy. And he does really, really bad things. Not me, I go to church. I'm good. Revelation describes a different scene. In Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is a a terrifying scene that we see. Great white throne of judgment. Everything we do, church, the secrets of our hearts are recorded by God. And God keeps perfect records. We also have to point out that you, if you are not in Christ, right? If you are not in Christ, on that day, right, your, your name will not be found in the book of life. If you did not repent of your sins and trust in Christ, your name will not be found in the book of life and you will face eternal damnation in hell. But, just like there are degrees of rewards in heaven, there are degrees of punishments in hell. And what does that criteria? Again, God's law. We all know people that don't profess to be believers that are, I'm going to use air quotes, that are good people. Right? Some people just instinctively know and do God's law. Maybe they've had a little bit of church or whatever. They're actually good, solid people. Unless they repent and trust in Christ... They will be in hell, but there are degrees of punishments in hell, just as there are degrees of rewards in heaven. And so keep that in mind, especially for those here or watching online. Here's something really important. Week after week, or if you're here for the first time, you're hearing the gospel, and you're hearing God's law. 
So you're responsible for that. Right? You're responsible for the level to which you have heard. Right? The Gentiles, they didn't have the law. They're responsible for whatever they've come to understand in their natural law or personal study or whatever else. The Jews, they were responsible for all of it because they know it. They memorized it. You guys, everyone, when we hear the gospel, we're responsible for that. We could never stand before God and say, well, nobody ever told me. Nobody ever warned me. Nobody ever gave me the option. Right? If you've heard it, you're responsible for it. So let's keep that in mind as well. Christians, again, we will escape judgment for the wrath of God for sin, right? That's the book of life. We're secure by faith alone in Jesus, but we shall be judged according to our obedience to the law with varying degrees of reward in heaven. And the criteria of that will be God's law. Dr. Tom Schreiner writes, the gospel that Paul preaches to the Gentiles does not invalidate the law. On the contrary, it teaches that Jesus Christ will judge all people according to their obedience to the law. Righteousness is not based on works, but it is according to works. It's a very important distinction. Another commentator, John Murray, puts it this way. The criterion of good works is the law of God. And the law of God is not abrogated, meaning done, done away with for the believer. We can never be justified by the law, right? That's where it gets really, really confusing. There's no one on earth that could obey the law perfectly. We've all sinned. By the time we're two or three years old, we're done, right? By the time we we punched our neighbor kid in the face because he took our truck or whatever else, right? We're done. We're gone. By the time we obeyed our parents, disobeyed our parents, I mean, there's no possible way because sin is alive and well but we're reminded of the grace of Jesus Christ that we have through faith. And Christian, last week, verse 6 told us that God will render each one according to his works. This is not for our final destination, but for our final acclamation. Our rewards, or lack thereof in heaven, ultimately and directly depend on our obedience right now, right here, to God's law. In other words, Holiness matters. In other words, maturity matters. In other words, what I did with what God gave me matters. We're not just hearers of the law. We need to be doers of it as well. And maybe some of you are thinking about that passage in James. In James chapter 1 says this, But be doers of the word, not hearers only deceiving yourselves and then he gives this ridiculous example for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror where he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like but the one who looks into the perfect law the law of liberty and perseveres being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts he will be blessed in his doing every time we read the bible every time we're together every time we hear a sermon preached Excuse me, every time we're reminded of who God is and what he calls us to, right? We're reminded if this is what I'm called to. I need to keep this in mind, not just walk away and forget it. Christian, are you resting? Are you coasting on the fact that you are a Christian? There's a judgment coming for us as well. How do we prepare now? We cultivate holiness today in what we're doing. How are you doing in having no other gods before him? 
How are you doing in your idolatry? How are you doing revering the name of the Lord and all that goes along with Him? How are we doing? I shouldn't just say you, because this applies to me as well. How are we doing honoring the Lord's day? How are we doing in lusting after other people or coveting? How are we doing in speaking the truth and not stealing? We could go on. Let's just summarize it like Jesus did. How are we doing in loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving others as much as we love ourselves? That's what we're talking about here. That's the criteria that we will sit under on Judgment Day. And that happens right now. In this life, we obey. We all sin. We all struggle with sin. But we need to have fruit growing on our branches here, church. The fruit of holiness and maturity. And one day, God will inspect that fruit. And he will render each one according to his works. And the fruit is evidence of our faith. Right? Fruit just doesn't grow by itself. It is the outgrowth of the transformed heart that we have. So how much mature, holy fruit do we have for Jesus to inspect on that day? We will be judged for our obedience, not merely our status. Think about this as well, church. Like the Jews, sort of. How much have we been given? How much have we been blessed with? We've been given Jesus. We live on this side of the cross, this side of the resurrection, we know that he came. We know that he did the work perfectly. We know that he's not in the tomb. He was resurrected from the dead. We've been given the church. We've been given God's word. We've been given the spirit. How much more will we be held responsible? Because, church, others see us, others watch us, and what are our lives saying about our status as believers? That's where Paul goes next. Look at verse 17. <clears throat> But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This gets back to kind of the, the full rant Paul has here in his diatribe. He's kind of going off. Anytime someone's general life rule, right? Anytime anybody says, you call yourself a blank, whatever that is, it's coming. Get ready for it. You call yourself a Jew? Why? Because you rely on the law and you talk big about God? You know what pleases him, you think? You know his will? You know, why, why do you know all that? Oh, because you have the law, that's why. And so that's another thing you're boasting in, because it is actually, he says, the embodiment of all knowledge and truth. Like, the law is perfect, but you have it. Does it reflect in your life? You're so sure about yourself that you teach others, a guide to the blind and a light in the darkness, an instructor of foolish, a teacher to the children, because you have the law. And so I have a question, Mr. Teacher. Who teaches you? Because you know what? You need a teacher. 
because you obviously haven't learned anything from the law. He says, you, you preach, don't steal, but you steal. You preach, don't commit adultery, and you commit adultery. You preach to hate idols, and you rob temples yourself. That's a little tricky. It either means they actually robbed idols, which did happen in history, because the Jews thought, well, they're pagan idols, and uh, idol temples usually had a lot of gold in it, so God really doesn't care if we go in there and steal from fake gods. Not sure if that's what, what they're actually talking about, or just general sacrilegiousness in general. Right? What does that mean? It means they're probably just disregarding God's temple itself. And we know that they made it a house of legalism and a house of being all about themselves. Either way, they're preaching holiness and they aren't holy. They're preaching God's law, but they're not obeying it. They're sacrilegious, they're hypocritical, and worse yet, everyone knows it. Not only does everyone know it, you're being a terrible example, he tells them. God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Meaning the Gentiles look at who you are and they say, if that's God, if that's being someone that's a God follower or a person of God, I don't want any part of that God. If that's what God's like, then I'm out. Forget it. I don't want any part of that God. And he really grinds their gears by quoting from Isaiah. He harkens back to Isaiah 52. That's a direct quote from Isaiah 52, which they should have known by heart. He says, uh, in original context, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall be no more come into you, the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrians oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing? Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all day, my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. He tells them, in a sense, you are just as bad as your forefathers. They did the same thing. We had the Assyrians who despised my name because of their example. And now we have the Gentiles in first century Roman culture who are despising my name because of your example. Blaspheming my name. You think you're so special because you're God's people. You are actually causing people to despise God's name. And I'll say the second point this way. We must strive to have lives that live up to our calling. We must strive to have lives that live up to our calling. My alternate point title for that is Don't Be a Hypocrite. A common theme in the way that Paul goes after his brothers and sisters is hypocrisy. Paul is calling out his brothers for despite having all the blessings of being Jews, they don't have lives that actually reflect the true identity of who they're supposed to be. Worse yet, they're leading others astray because they are teachers who are complete hypocrites. It's like having a personal fitness instructor or coach who's out of shape. It's like having a math teacher who graduated from an Ivy League school and can't do simple arithmetic. 
It's like having an MBA and running the family business into the ground. It's like being a pastor who has a doctorate degree and whose life is full of sin. It's like being a Christian who has tons of spiritual blessings in Christ, a Facebook page full of Bible verses, and yet their actual lives look actually nothing like Christ. Christians, we must strive to have lives that live up to our calling because what people are seeing us, and that's what they equate with God. That's what they equate with being a Christian. What are our lives showing about who God is? Lives that are supposed to live up to our calling. I use that language intentionally because it's one of Paul's favorite things to say. In Ephesians 4.1, Paul challenges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. In Colossians 1.10, he challenges us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. In 1 Thessalonians 2, he challenges us to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And this hurts. Conviction comes quickly because, let's face it, we all have areas of our lives that don't live up to the calling that we have received. That's why I said striving. I was first thinking about it, that we must have lives that live up to the calling. And I'm like, okay, I fail. We must strive to have lives that live up to the calling. We all have things in our lives that aren't very Christian. We all have hypocrisy. Every time we we sin, we become tentative, temporary atheists and hypocrites. We momentarily forget God's existence and act in contradiction to what we profess. Every year, church, as we profess faith, as we grow in the faith, our goal is to have less and less hypocrisy and more and more genuine integrity. The essence of the hypocritical Christian is trying to look good on the outside, right? But then on the inside or in private, we're something completely different. And it's the inside that actually counts more than the outside because that's where the outside comes from. And that's where Paul lands the plane. Look at verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Okay, so if you're new to the church, if you're new to the Bible, and you hear us talking about circumcision, you're like, okay, I knew they'd get weird. I'm out of here, right? And here's what we've got to remember, right? We've got to think of circumcision not as a medical procedure, but as a symbol of the covenant. If you're not familiar, yes, it is a weird and shocking symbol, but it actually is a symbol of the old covenant, the people of Israel. If you were circumcised in Israel, you were a member of God's family. That's the sign of the covenant. Right after God made the covenant with Abraham, 
that he would give him land and he would give him a people and that the whole world will be blessed through him. He says, here's the sign of the covenant, and that is circumcision. Paul knows this, of course. And after he has torn them up about the law, he now goes after them about another one of their prized possessions, circumcision, their little badge of honor. You can imagine how the law and the covenant were two of the most tempting things that perhaps Paul's Jewish audience would be inclined to rest on. We have the law. We have circumcision. We are the people of God. And it might be good here in this passage to use the word covenant in place of circumcision. I am not changing the word. The elders are ready to get their heresy gun out. I'm just for explanation, okay? Think of the word circumcision here as the word covenant. To be circumcised means that you are part of the family of God. It's an identification. It means you're part of the family. And Paul says being part of the family is not worth anything if you don't obey the family rules of the covenant. Otherwise, how are you really a member of the family? He gives them an example. A man who isn't part of the family acts like he is by obeying the family covenant rules. Won't people mistake him for being part of the family if he does what a family member should do? If people see him obeying the stipulations of the covenant, won't they think in their minds that, yes, he must be part of the covenant? Why? Because he's actually doing it. They can see it. He's living it. And then when they look at the actual family members, the actual covenant members who are not keeping the family rules, they're going to get mocked for that. They're going to get condemned for that. They say, wait a minute, this guy's not even in your family. And he's acting like it. You're in the family, in the covenant, and you're not acting like it. You're a hypocrite. Again, going after them for hypocrisy. So if their Jewishness, Paul says, is actually worth anything, it comes down to actually obeying the covenant. Paul says in verse 28, For if one is a Jew, or sorry, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. It's like, well, uh, <laughs> kind of is. But Paul's saying, no, it, it's deeper than that, right? It's not just what we see on the outside. It's what's on the inside. And he uses that shocking language to say that. As weird as it is, the sign of the covenant, it's not just on the outside. It has to come from the inside. A Jew is not one who just looks like a Jew, but one who is really Jewish in their heart of hearts, loves the law and obeys the law. Go back to Deuteronomy 10, where we read this morning, Moses challenged them to what? Circumcise their hearts. Meaning it does them no good to obey the outward symbols of the covenant and have hearts that are hardened towards God. Being a hypocrite is still hated today. It's one of the biggest complaints about us as Christians. Being true to yourself In other words, being authentic is what is celebrated, and it should be. So let me say it this way. We are to honor God with our authenticity. We are to honor God with our authenticity. Elsewhere in Galatians, chapter 6, Paul brings in circumcision once again to repeat the idea that being a Christian is not just on the outside. Verse 6, I'm sorry, chapter 6, verse 15, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but what does count? A new creation. 
something that happens. You are, you are transformed. You are regenerated. You are reborn. So don't talk to me about all the things that you did on the outside unless your inside is actually lined up with what you're professing. Calvin wrote, if we really wish to be approved by our judge, we must strive for sincerity of heart. We've definitely beat this nail into the board this morning, but if you're a Christian, where are you, where are we not being authentic? Where are we trying to flash the badge of the Christian when it's convenient for us, but then have a private life that doesn't line up with that? What do our work friends think? What do our school friends think? What do our neighbors think? Our families? Would they be able to say, yeah, Mike's a Christian and he actually lives like that? No one is perfect, of course, and we have to resist the temptation to make it all about heartless obedience, right? Because then we retreat back to, oh, there's lots of boxes to check. I'll do this, 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 and this. That's exactly what Paul's condemning them for. Your hearts are far from me, he says. One of my closest friends often says that the heart of the matter is that it's a matter of the heart. And that's very true. What is on the inside perhaps matters more than what's on the outside. Why? Because that's where the stuff on the outside is supposed to come from. It's supposed to, it's supposed to be an outgrowth of fruit from a heart that has been transformed by the gospel. Spiritually speaking, there is no outside fruit without an inside transformation. Loveless obedience, though, is legalism. Legalism holds people to a law that they don't obey or even love themselves. That's what Jesus was going after the Pharisees for. He says, you're all hypocrites, whitewashed tombs. Your heart's not in this. All you want people to do is obey and make you look good. They made the law about themselves, their status, their honor, their glory. Christians, on the other hand, we need to love God enough to obey his law. Do you see how love and obedience are linked? It's not just love God and never obey God. Neither is it just obey God and don't love him. It's both. We have to love God enough to obey him. Because if we're truly transformed, that's what will show, not only on the inside, but the outside as well. Look at verse 29 again. But if a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter, then his praise is not from man, but God. Paul tells them what is truly needed here, not an outward circumcision, but an inward circumcision, one of the heart, one that is sensitive to God, one that loves God enough to obey him, a way of following God that is not merely the letter of the law, but a true transformation of life through the Holy Spirit. He's hinting at what he's about to unpack in chapter 3 in detail the glorious gospel, the Holy Spirit, which actually gives us a new heart, which then causes us to love God and then causes us to, from that love, obey God. Then the glory goes to God, a glory from a truly transformed life, one that has been justified now by faith and is backed up by a life that is consistent with that justification in its obedience to the law. So I'll say the big idea this way. True justification brings true transformation. True justification brings true transformation. Remember where we started all this. The Jews were not just justified because they were Jews. Paul corrects them 
and says that you'll be judged for your obedience, not just your status. If we are truly justified church, it will shine brightly through a life that has been truly transformed. And the criteria of that is joyful obedience to God's law, his moral standard. Church, we would do well to think often of that day of judgment. And this is so neglected, right? We think like, we're Christians. I'm saved. Now I just need to be a nice person and try and not cuss so much or get into road rage incidents or whatever or, or just go to church. But we forget that we are headed for judgment as well. We want to maximize our heavenly rewards and we do that through obedience right now today. The great R.C. Sproul used to have a, a monthly column in Table Talk titled, Right Now Counts Forever. And it does. Whatever we're doing, whether it's changing the liner on our pool, working our dead-end job, going to school, caring for kids, all of that, whatever season of life God has for us right now, it does count forever. And so there's no meaningless tasks. There's no meaningless life situations that we're in. God calls us to glorify him through obedience, and that counts forever. I want to leave us with some encouragement from the Apostle Peter about our future inheritance. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 starts this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has called us, caused us rather, to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Watch this. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, although it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls on that day. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your grace, your love. We thank you for this word, this, this tough, profound word, Lord. Pray that you will help us to think well of that day of judgment. Father, if there are those here who have not actually submitted to Jesus Christ as the way of salvation, to be justified by faith, we pray that they would do that today. For, for us, Lord, those who would call themselves Christians, we pray that we would keep that judgment day in mind, that we would work to be found on that day, as Peter reminded us, worthy, justified, with much fruit from obedience to your law. We pray it all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.